Both had good jobs in Sydney. My father, Ted, worked for a local publishing company and then later for the Reader's Digest. He was handsome, with jet black hair swept into place with brill cream, rather like the Don Draper character in Mad Men. My mother, who called herself Bunty, worked as an arts publicist, mainly for the Australian Opera and the Australian Ballet. She was blonde, vivacious, and would dress stylishly in bright designer clothes. My mother and father didn't really behave like parents to me or as partners to each other. It was more a case of two self-involved individuals who happened to rent a room to a boarder of mystifyingly modest height. They, or rather we, lived in a two-storey house of normal size with a circular drive squeezed into the front yard as a nod to feudal grandeur. It had a pool out the back and a long, bright sunroom for entertaining. The sunroom had a bar at one end, decorated to an Hawaiian theme, a pair of oversized salad servers embellished with frangipanis was mounted on the wall behind the bar, presumably to celebrate Hawaii's famous love of salad. A glass bowl held packets of motel matches. Stay at the sea breeze on Queensland's Gold Coast. And there were several large lighters embedded in lumps of marble, which I'd occasionally be required to carry around, igniting the cigarettes of guests. In this household, there'd be no problems if a visitor craved either a drink or a smoke. My parents worked hard and enjoyed a busy social life. They'd arrive home just before dinner and then, quite often, would head to a party or the theatre, clambering their way up the social ladder, leaving me with a teenage babysitter. Or they'd host elaborate dinner parties, a clatter of music and conversation floating up the stairs towards my bedroom. At such events, my mother spoke loudly in a posh, strangulated accent. She sounded like the Queen Mum, if the Queen Mum had been required to instruct a group of slightly deaf workmen standing on the other side of a noisy road. It wasn't only the manner of speaking, it was the words themselves, words I now realise which were chosen to prove her aristocratic standing. It was never toilet, but always a lavatory. I am just off to the lavatory, she'd announce at high volume, almost constantly, to whole roomfuls of people, so frequently that her guests must have been worried about the state of her bladder. In the same spirit, it was napkin, not serviette, sofa, not couch, pudding, not sweet, spectacles, not glasses, and drawing room, not lounge. My childhood was a blizzard of these terms, my mother never more pleased than when she could work several into a single sentence. Let's head into the drawing room for some pudding if you're all sure you don't need the lavatory. Leave your napkin behind. You won't need it once you're sitting on the sofa in the drawing room. The lavatory is just through there, past the sofa. You'll see the way through your spectacles. When I read autobiographies, I'm amazed by people's ability to recall their early childhood. The film star, Diane Cilento, for example, wrote about the music teacher she had when she was eight or nine years old and remembered everything. The teacher's name, personality, even the state of her teeth. 
Theodora Benson was a dark-haired melancholic with chipped teeth and moles all over her face. Was Diane just making this up? Do most people retain this stuff? I try to recall my own piano teacher, but can't get a picture to form, either in terms of the moles or the name. I can certainly remember the long bicycle ride to the teacher's house and the steep upward slope just before I got there. I remember the rush of pleasure as I whooshed back down the hill at the end of the lesson. I also recall the music teacher's house, double-fronted, with a long corridor to the back room, where the piano stood, and the musty, cabbagey smell of the place, and the boredom. Other than that, nothing. I can't even recall the gender of the teacher, never mind supply a detailed dental report.